Support for the Warm Regards podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, allowing individuals to invest in solar projects. Earn up to 7.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash warm. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. conversation with journalists, scientists, newsmakers, and citizens on the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. I am also a woman, and I talk often about how I bring my whole self to my science and my outreach. I'm pretty active on Twitter, where I don't just talk about my love for mammoths, my favorite pollen grains, or my concern for a warming Arctic. I talk about what it's like being a woman in America, a woman in science, and a woman online. And these aren't just hats that I wear that I can take off anytime. They're interconnected parts of my identity. For better or worse, my identity as a woman shapes my experiences, and in particular, it shapes how the world sees me. Sometimes I actually forget this for a while. Sometimes I'm just trying to be a scientist on the internet, geeking out about the earth with anyone who wants to listen, when suddenly I am reminded forcefully that I am never just a scientist or just a voice. As my platform has grown over the years, I've come to appreciate that anyone who has a voice can also be a target, and not all of us bear the risk of speaking up equally. Many high-profile climate scientists like Michael Mann or Catherine Hayhoe receive abuse and even threats on a near-daily basis. And yes, talking about climate change can be really scary sometimes, especially when you remember that we live in a world where we actually have something called the Climate Science Legal Defense Fund. But far and away, the worst abuse that I receive is because I'm a woman who dares to have opinions and even has the audacity to share those opinions in public. Yes, we still live in a world where this is such a radical notion that it makes some people, mostly men, afraid or even angry And many of them take that anger out on us, protected by the distance and often the anonymity of the internet. This is pretty heavy stuff, I realize, but it's incredibly important. And it's the focus of today's conversation. I am so excited to introduce this week's guest. Joining me uh, for this super fun topic, and yes, I promise we will have fun as much as possible, is Dr. Sarah Myrie, a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Washington. She's a paleoclimatologist researching marine ecosystems and climate change. She's also an amazing communicator. Seriously, you have to follow her on Twitter if you're not already. She was, in fact, recently announced one of the most influential Seattleites of 2017. When you read about Sarah, the words citizen scientist come up a lot to describe her, and I think that really captures the full breadth of of who she is. She's also on the leadership board of 500 Women Scientists, and a board member of the Center for Women and Democracy. I actually think that Sarah's website sums it up best, and I quote, she listens, insists on diversity, wants you to ask a lot of questions, puts people above profits, but is not anti any business, sees the personal slash professional slash political soul of people as inseparable and will tell you the truth, even if it's not what you want to hear. Sarah, it's so great to have you and to finally sort of meet you in person, I guess. (laughs) Yay. I'm so glad to join you. I love warm regards and I'm really, um, I'm just really thankful to 
get to chat with you. Yeah. So it's the, the show feels especially relevant. Uh, I know that we planned this quite a while ago, um, but this year has been something of an ongoing reckoning for harassers and predators. And just today, um, Time Magazine announced the Silence Breakers as Person of the Year, which is reflecting the sort of growing Me Too movement, which actually started you know a decade ago, but has kind of come back um, into the forefront. So um, why now? Why, are, why is this happening now? Why, are, why is this conversation so timely and so important? Well, I think when we elect a man into the highest public office that brags about sexually assaulting women, that the world changes for women and it is an existential threat to women. And so I think we saw the, the sort of immediate response in the Women's March um, in January. And then there has been a period of deep fomenting and painful unearthing that has catalyzed the Me Too movement. And I think now we're seeing our culture really starting to break at the seams because women are so angry. Uh, We are starting to account for the true cost, the damage of misogyny in our personal and professional lives. Yeah. And and for a lot of us, you know, the daily headlines, the the growing list of of predators and abusers who, who are being outed and fired and replaced is it's like reliving trauma every single day constantly. And, and, and so many of us, as you say, are incredibly angry because when I have these conversations on the internet, I'm not just talking about these issues as though they're some sort of abstract. They're deeply personal and that anger reflects an accumulation of years or decades of microaggressions and macroaggressions and assault and abuse and everything else. And so I'm actually having a really hard time with my anger because I can't Mm. talk about this, especially with men in a way that is helpful for them, right? Like I can't gently guide Mm -hmm. them through this process. I can't hold their hand and absolve them of any past wrongdoing when they tell me what they've done in their, in their pasts. And, um, I, I, and I, and I'm Mm -hmm. just sort of done with, uh, with centering men's feelings around these issues. Mm, Me too. Like, how are you dealing with this? Like, are you finding some font of like patience that I I could tap into maybe, or is it okay for us to? No, No, I have no patience. And I think for men that are trying, that want to participate, they need to keep up, right? Their feelings and their emotions are, their their sort of reckoning is relevant. Like, yes, I get it. But you know what? It's really parallel. Like, when Trump was election elected, I had an enormous reckoning for me as a white woman of understanding what um, the cost or, or learning that I had never opened my mind clearly enough to understanding what the, the lived experience of people of color in this country actually is, right? There, there is a, um, a reckoning that we do as people that sit with pl- places of undeserved privilege that, you know, we have to do that work internally. Like my story of, quote, getting woke is, you know, no one wants to hear that story, right? Because I need to keep up with the cultural conversation and I need to use my newfound powers of empathy to show up with my body and listen and be, um, be present as a, as a whole person. And so I think the same thing is in front of men. Like this is a painful process of coming to terms with how you have looked away from 
unearned privilege. You've looked away from other people's suffering right next to you. This is the work of it, though. It is uncomfortable, and your feelings are not in the center of this, and this should not be about you. But by committing yourself to a path of deep reckoning and understanding, there is so much meaning and capacity for connection that, will, that opens up you know, in that process. So it's, it's really deeply rewarding. But um, you know, you don't, you, there's no place to arrive at as, like, as a, woman, a white woman. Like, I'm not going to arrive at some you know, undescribed you know, landing place where I now get what it's like to be in America as a person of color. My process is to stay on the path and to learn and be humble and to, to continue to care and show up. Um, so there's no location to go to. It's more of just changing course. Yeah, I really like not only that you talk about this as a process, and it's funny because as we're, as we're talking, I'm like virtually watching the like listeners like turn the podcast off, right? Because they're going to hear that, right? They can't hear that it's their responsibility and that it is work. It's not that no one's going to sort of save you or absolve you that you have to show up and do this, you know, over and over again. And then it's something as well. Um, But I also like something you mentioned, which is that empathy is, is a key part of this, that um, the empathy is how we come to understand the humanity of others. Right. And, 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 advocate for them. Um, and it's, it's interesting because I, I keep coming back to this idea of empathy in terms of my science communication. And I think that, you know, for, I've learned from people like Catherine Hayhoe that empathy and storytelling are so essential to reaching people, especially people who you might not otherwise be able to connect with. Um, they might see you as a scientist and just sort of shut down, but if you can connect to them on a, on a different level, right, then that's, then there's, there's, there's a path forward there. And so, yeah. I also feel like that empathy makes us really vulnerable sometimes. Um, you know, when I, when I share myself as a whole person on the internet, that opens me up to, to, to kinds of attacks that uh, I might not otherwise receive. And, and I'm speaking mostly about the internet because that's frankly how I interact with a, a large proportion of people, you know, these days, but you know, like I, my first, um, you know, Twitter, for example, has been incredibly powerful for me, but I got my first stalker, after tweeting openly about my experience having an abortion online. And I made a conscious decision mm-hmm. to, to have that conversation, right. To, to do that um, because I mm-hmm. want to be a, a whole, a whole person on the internet, but that also kind of creates these vulnerabilities, I think. And um, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that in terms of your approach to communication broadly, or because you also strike me as someone who's been incredibly open and personal about your experiences um, as a as a human being as well as a scientist. And do you do you feel like like what I don't know what's the trade off there in terms of the the strengths of that approach versus the vulnerabilities? Oh, that's such a big question, and I I sit with this a lot. Um, there is strength in being vulnerable in public, and demonstrates your own humanity. It demonstrates that, you know, as a scientist, I am doing my very best to understand the science, to participate in public, to, to be a good colleague. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of layers to this. And, and so one of the things that I have, so, and I just want to, uh, just 
to say that there's a difference between communicating outside of our circles and then communicating inside of our circles. And I, I do think that the outward communication is one thing and it does, that's where a lot of empathy needs to show up. You know, that's how we demonstrate in public who scientists are, our, our kinds of intentions in the world, the, the work that we find fascinating and necessary for the world to, to understand. But then inside of our circles, like that is there, there's a real space for women to talk to women with an unfiltered, an unvarnished language. Like we need to own our own stories and in spaces with women right now, other women scientists, like my anger is unbridled and my righteousness is unbridled because, and so, so is theirs, you know? And so there's a, there's a real space, I think, for us to broaden our, our approach in public and, and figure out who, you know, who are we really talking to? Because other women, like it's a political statement to be a woman in, in, in science, like being a woman and a scientist, it, it itself is a political statement. And yet we have covered that up with layers of diversity training and communication training and in this sort of insular academic culture. And, and yet when, when you turn away from that and you look at the landscape of leadership, the, um, the landscape of public expertise and public voices, who gets buy-in, who is trusted, that is a, a landscape that is deeply slanted away from women succeeding in public. And some, and the women that we need succeeding in public are women scientists, you know? So, um, it's, it's a really complex thing to navigate because I also think, and this is me, you know, so I'm an extrovert, like my life is messy. I see the grace all the time around me. I, I love talking to people on the internet and in, in the world, you know, I am always the person that chats up the barista and the, um, the Lyft driver. And, you know, so I love people and I kind of love that gritty sort of process of sharing my life in public and getting that really human feedback of like, yeah, me too. I also did this. Hey, did you try that out? So part of this is strategic. Part of this is professional and part of it is deeply personal. And I think it looks different for every different individual and, and def definitely for each individual scientist. Yeah. And I would agree with you. I, I, I think I, I, it, for, for me, I've always framed it in terms of, you know, my grand meta project is like, is humanizing science, which is such an important process in terms of getting mm -hmm. people to, you know, think that science is something they can do. So it's a diversity issue. Um, mm -hmm. It's tied into my feminism. Um, but it's also just, a, I think, an important way to sort of break down those ivory tower models of, of science is something that's very remote and elite. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so for me, like and oversharing is kind of an act of resistance. <laughs> it is an act of resistance. And I just want to touch back on something that you did say you tweeted about your abortion and thank you for doing that because like your story matters to me. Like, and it's not a shameful thing. Like the, the things that we need as women to control our reproductive future abortion is included in that and it shouldn't be a political statement. And it is. Right. And you coming forward and talking about this, like that is so nourishing for me when, when you, when you did that, like talking about that now, like I love that. And the same thing for, for me just to like, um, to, uh, to articulate like how I'm also trying to do that in public is I recently wrote, wrote a piece 
in The Stranger about the culture of harassing and diminishing women scientists and came out for the first time saying like, look, I have been assaulted, harassed, and raped as a scientist doing field work and interacting with senior scientists. So I, you know, I am learning how to come forward with my own stories as well, not just with the sort of fun parts of daily life, but really like talking about the lived experience of what this career track looks like as a woman. Yeah. And I mean, the, you know, that piece that you wrote creates so much space for others, right? You're, it's, mm-hmm. it's incredibly painful and brave to do what you did. And, um, and, but at the same time, it, it's, it's, it's not only sort of cathartic for ourselves to, to tell stories, but it just, it, it, it enables others. It sort of gives people permission to, to tell their own stories, but also just to be who they are and to have gone through everything that they've gone through and to know that, okay, there are still pathways for me. There are still possibilities in my future. And, you know, what, what, what makes me so angry is how your particular experiences and the experiences of so many women in science have been, have, have not been, you know, sort of what I talked about earlier, where you're just sort of like, do, 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 you're going along doing science. And then someone from the outside world kind of, um, in, you know, invades you in that way. Um, your, your sort of sovereignty or like your, your, um, what's the word I'm looking for your agency, right? Like mm-hmm. yourself and, but that it's, it's your colleagues, right? Like when it, when, when this comes from the people that you're supposed to trust the people that there's a, a particular power dynamic, maybe they have control over your research or your, your ability to, to get your degree, et cetera. There's like this, this it's, it's, it's somehow different. Um, it's still terrible, but it's, there's, there's something that is, I, I don't know if it's worse or if it even, if even this is the right way to talk about it, but the fact it's so damaging, yeah, the fact that it's happening within your workplace. Yeah, it, absolutely. And it, it is really awful to learn as an undergraduate student, mm-hmm. as a young woman, mm-hmm. that women are decorative, they're, intellectual aspirations come second, if at all, and men are ultimate authorities. And the, the, the men around you, the other undergraduate men, have no sense of reckoning around their currency in the world, whether people are going to view them as inherently unworthy of the kind of career track that they've chosen to follow. Yeah. Um, you know, learning that as a, under, as a student, like those, th- those rec- those things wounded me in ways that I am still dealing with as an, as a 35 year old adult, like they, they're so damaging. And it's just this, I mean, it's just the word baggage just comes to mind, right? Because you're literally carrying this with you all the time and that takes energy away, right? It's, it's constant work that you have to do to just, to be, just to be, let alone to be a scientist and, and to be a scholar and advocate a citizen. Mm -hmm. Um, well that's where I think anger comes in because anger is full of energy and righteousness for changing the world and anger is not anger doesn't come with like dissociation from reality like you can still evaluate ever evidence and be angry and if you are evaluating evidence right now there's really great reasons there are clear reasons to be angry and you can take that energy and say like no, my career actually does matter. My voice does matter. And we need to change the world. So, you know, when we have these feminist conversations, like I just want to 
name check Lindy West because I, I just listened to her book and she's an amazing public feminist and writer and thinker. And at the end of her book, she was describing, you know, why did I take on these things? Why did I take on rape jokes and comedy? And why have I been at the forefront of, um, the culture shaming people for being fat, you know, and she, she reflects on this and she says, it's because we're world building. We are literally deconstructing the world and remaking it through these efforts. I think that it's so meaningful, you know, it's so necessary for us to do that and to have the kind of sort of nourishment um, in our community, within women, within the circles that we run in to, to stay in this really challenging time. Oh, that's so, that's such a powerful way to think about that. Um, Nora Jemison just tweeted recently about how she was interviewed for um, Wisconsin Public Radio, I think, and she was asked why she doesn't write more utopian stories, basically. Like, why, why do you write about, can you imagine a world without oppression and bigotry? And she talked about how she's had a hard time envisioning that world because we're st- in a way, because you're, as you say, we're still, or as Lindy says, we're still deconstructing this one, right? Like a lot, a lot of our obsession, I think with, with dystopia is partly because we're still figuring out how all the parts work. And so it's almost like Minecraft for social justice, right? We have all these, all these blocks and we're sort of imagining what the worst case scenarios are, but we're also trying to imagine alternate futures. And we have, there are wonderful movements that are, that are, like Afrofuturism that are trying to, you know, that are doing a really good job of, of envisioning mm. futures that are different than the one that we're on, you know, sort of set on. But this, this whole idea of needing to deconstruct in order to be able to build is I think a really, a really powerful metaphor. I hadn't really quite considered. Cause I mean, I, I think about this too. Like there are, I, people who know me will probably be surprised to find that I feel super self-conscious all the time about speaking up. I mean, I, I consider myself to be incredibly mm-hmm. loud and mouthy, but there's, it's very rare that I will, you know, have a Twitter thread or write a post or an op-ed or something and then not go home and think, Oh, I should, I should, I shouldn't have said that. Like people are going to not like me. Um, I have to worry about this, this, you know, having a voice and what, and it's not even the repercussions. Dude, voice. It's not totally. Like I stuck my head out. It's like, I'm a bad person for, ha- for being that opinionated. And it's like, I st- I, even I still have to deal with that. And I think of myself as a pretty, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm always enabling other people's feminism. Why can't I enable my own, you know? Dude, I so hear you on that one. I have like anxiety hangovers after t- every time I publish something, oh. you know, and have to kind of walk away and then walk back. And there's a lot of nerves because, you know, we're, when, when you push against the culture, the, the culture pushes back and it, the culture, you, you pay that cost in harassment, in demeanment, in, you know, other like sort of, there's this insinuating cost to our own energy and our own time. It's really hard. And it, and it partially, you know, I, I think there's something to do with being a scientist because as a scientist, you learn to be the first one to question your own work yes. with this sort of deeply discerning, um, skeptical, uh, gritty kind of framework for evaluating everything. So I think that that actually sometimes is a very useful tool, but sometimes when you turn it and you wield that tool on yourself, you're just sort of eroding your own sense of self, you know, 
so there's there's some discomfort I think um, that we experience as scientists when we use that lens, you know, without discernment. Support for the Warm Regards podcast and the following message comes from Wonder Capital, the leading solar investment platform. With Wonder, individual investors like you can now invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S., earning up to 7.5% annually and helping to fight global climate change. Wonder's newest fund, Wonder Capital 5, has raised more than $3 million from investors in its first 30 days. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm and commit your investment before January 1st to take advantage of Wonder's holiday special, Zero Investor Fees. Act now because starting in 2018, new investments will be subject to fees. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. I, I would like to, to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the kinds of, of harassment and abuse that, that people like us get. Um, I don't, we don't need to like, mm-hmm. trade quips or anything, but I do feel like there's this misconception that, you know, online harassment is sort of relegated to these dark corners, right? It's Gamergate, it's, it's alt-right, it's, it's not sort of your everyday interactions. And, and, and yet some of the worst harassment I've gotten is from other academics or um, people who are, would probably not consider themselves to be actually harassing me, right? Like they think it's something that, mm-hmm. that applies to this kind of cartoonish villain model of, of, the, of people on the internet. And I'm just wondering what, you know, what your personal experience has been like and how do we get people to realize that there is a very gendered approach in terms of how women in particular are challenged or critiqued or, or demeaned uh, online? Oh, yeah. I mean, people that say what, what happens on the Internet is not real life, like, <laughs> no, no, no. You're not on the Internet then. You don't know. Like, the, those of us that are on, are on the Internet for our careers and our communication this is our life. Like our lives are on the internet and the communication that happens on the internet is important. And so just first off, that dismissal is so obnoxious. It's just dumb. It just doesn't. That I order on the internet show up at my house, right? Like (laughs) if I order a pizza online, it's real, it's a real pizza that I can eat. Right. I mean, it's, there are, it, it pretends this like divide that doesn't even exist. Yeah. And I think, okay, so there's a couple of layers. So, um, there are, there's, where's the, where is the harassment coming from? How is it coupled to climate communication? And then what do you do when you're harassed? So let's start with the, where is it coming from? Obviously there's a very well-funded disinformation campaign in the United States to dilute and dissuade, you know, public views on climate change to, interject all this bullshit and skepticism that shouldn't be there um, when, when the, this, the consensus science is very, 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 very robust. Um, and so there's a lot of money that is being funneled through um, uh, political entities that are bad actors. For example, I've been harassed by this guy here in Seattle who's a a lobbyist, um, for the Washington policy center. And, you know, that sounds legitimate until you do a little homework and realize, Oh, um, the Koch brothers fund this right wing think tank and they are, 
literally putting people on the internet to find scientists and discredit them. Mm -hmm. So this guy constantly refers to me as like, oh, you're so angry. All you have is anger. Isn't it amazing how you both assume the mantle of scientific objectivity and then are blatantly unobjective? Like, number one, how exactly am I supposed to be unobjective about being a woman? There's no way I can divorce myself from myself. Like, I'm always a woman. The culture always views me as a woman. So that just drives me crazy. Um, okay, so, the, so you have a well-funded disinformation campaign, and one of the tools they use is misogyny. And there are think tanks. Um, for example, another think tank is the Cato Institute in D.C., which is a libertarian think tank. They've put out hit pieces on me where even the other scientists that they don't agree with, they will refer to those male scientists as like Dr. So-and-so, whereas I'm like, quote, someone named Sarah Myrie, which is, again, just blatant misogyny and plays into all of these cultural tropes around men being the brokers of information and authority and women being decorative. Um, So then you can move into the, the sort of academic harassment. Um, for example, I gave testimony last, um, January to Washington state's house environment committee. And I publicly, I I responded to a lawmaker's comment about a, um, particular scientist here in Washington, who is an atmospheric scientist and a weather celebrity, and also a hugely problematic public voice on climate change. And so I answered that honestly, Um, and so now I'm on record voicing my dissent against this very powerful man. And so he has launched a campaign of harassment against me and has been, you know, like I must take up so much of his time. Like, it's amazing how much time he's devoted to harassing me. So, you know, there's, there's another example of where does it come from? Powerful men that are narcissists that don't want someone that looks like me and sounds like me to be articulating my dissent with them in public. Um, so, so that's also, that's also present. And then what also is, of course, on the internet, you have this huge, um, red pill, anti-woman, um, uh, misogynistic machine that generates, um, harassment towards women in authority talking about, um, pretty much anything. But if you want to, if you talk about science and you talk about feminism at the same time, that's a huge red flag for them. Oh yeah. So for example, uh, earlier this week, I found a Reddit thread on my writing and there's like literal rape threats on the Reddit thread that are rape threats against like, they're gonna, Oh, it was, she's like not good enough to even rape. Like, Oh my God. Just, it's so, it's so awful and toxic. Like to encounter this about, people saying this about you and like meanwhile I'm like making salt dough you know ornaments with my kid in my kitchen and I have my socks on and like paying my electric bill and working on my you know edits for my you know manuscript on deep sea ecosystems like what what the what what yeah uh it just doesn't fit right yeah (laughs) And yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a bad actor. Like, I'm just talking about science and my own experience as a woman in public. Yeah. And those two things are, like, enough to blow the tops off the heads of these really toxic men. Well, and it's like the, the, the worst experience that, I, that I've had so far was the week. Do you remember Shirtgate, that whole situation with the um, European space? Uh, uh, the uh, guy wears a shirt with, like, 
scantily clad women on TV when he talks about the Rosetta Comet. Um, yep. Yeah, yep. Right. So totally. Yeah, and then a bunch of women were like, Hey, maybe, maybe don't represent a field that's been really hostile to women. Uh, where a lot of, you know, young, young girls are watching and are, are seeing this objectification on television. Like maybe don't do that. Maybe make a different choice. And these women, uh, many of them are scientists or journalists start getting nonstop harassment. And so all, all I do, I didn't even say like, you know, I, I didn't say anything about the shirt or the shirt wearer. All I said was that women are allowed to have opinions and that doesn't entitle them to death and rape threats. And then for a week, Bingo. for a week, it's like people talking about how they need to go send someone to check up on me. Um, they need to, you know, drive by my house. They, they've got friends who are local um, who need to keep an eye on me. Um, I need to be raped. Um, debates about Ugh. whether I'm ugly enough to be raped or, or, or not be raped. I mean, it's just like, uh, just like the, the worst behavior around just stating that you shouldn't give someone death or rape that threats for having an opinion, right? It wasn't even that, like, that was the objectionable opinion, right? And it's not like I was actually even criticizing or engaging in the discussion about the shirt itself. That's awful. I'm really sorry that that happened to you. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's certainly not any worse than what most of us have had to deal with, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're saying, like, it's, it's not like you're engaging on, you're not playing the same game, right? you're, you're being a professional. And then there's this sort of like, I don't know, populist army of angry dudes that just wants to undermine that. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, the landscape is not level. Like the idea that the, that my colleague, who's a, you know, a white guy, that his communication is, is received in the exact same way as my communication, you know, that's a, that's bankrupt. That's not true. Here's the thing. Institutions teach science communication as if that is true. And so the science communication toolkit that, that is, you know, institutionalized and repeated all around us does a disservice to women and people of color when they're communicating in public um, because it assumes that the playing field is level. It assumes that it's a meritocracy, that the best voices rise to the top. That's also not true. So there's a lot to like unpackage and look at around this because money is spent. Careers are built. People dedicate lots of time to this and we're missing some really key pieces as a community. If we want everyone to succeed in communicating their science in participating in public discourse. So I get a little hot and bothered about the kinds of um, sort of assumptions that institutions make about science communication um, and how that really deserves the careers of, of young up and coming uh, scientists. Right. Cause it's just a, it's like an equation um, or it's like a, almost like a Mad Libs, right? All you need to do is use the right words. Um, and yeah. then, you know, you'll and avoid these other words and everything will be all right. Yeah, totally. And I think that kind of goes back to this question of, okay, what, the harassment is coming from discrete kind of bad actors and entities that we can talk about specifically. But then when you get harassed, what do you do? Mm. Uh, when you get harassed publicly, what do you do? And the institutions around us, 
that number one, I love and I am devoted to, but number two, I want to hold to an ever higher standard. Those institutions tell us when we're graduate students, keep your head down, publish your science, um, don't make waves, and your docility will be rewarded down the line yep. through promotion or tenure. By participating in the system, you will be rewarded in the system. And that's not true. That's a lie. So we, we, we need to look at this as a landscape of power and a landscape of powerful people um, contributing to problems that they actually have a role in fixing. Um, so, you know, what do you do when you're harassed on Twitter? Like I have some techniques, um, obviously like you shared your block together list with me, like maybe six or eight months ago. And that was amazing. That was like my first time blocking together. Oh my God, I get so much so, crap from people for using that tool. Uh, uh, are you kidding yeah. me? Like I would not even, I wouldn't be able to use Twitter if I couldn't block together. Like it's just so important. Yeah, it's, it's been incredible to, yeah, for my sustainability. And but yeah. people often say like, oh, well, you know, you have an obligation to listen to all the voices, even people you disagree no. and you should get out of your bubble. And I'm like, I'm, no, I don't. I'm sorry, but the, the, the bubble in which I'm a cunt is not like a bubble that's yeah. productive for me to be in. Yeah, I exactly. Like that idea, the people that are saying that are – they're not in your shoes. They've not, they haven't experienced what you're experiencing. And they're assuming this mantle of like, but science is objective. It's not political. Why can't you just objectively listen to all the voices at the table mm-hmm. and sort of calling you like, why do you politicize this? You know, why do you, why do you want, you know, only the people that agree with you to listen to you or to, to talk with? And that, you know, that's not what you're doing. Like, that's not why you're engaging in, in public discourse, right. but you're definitely not engaging in public discourse for rape threats right. or being called a cunt, you know, and that's why, you know, the harassment is there to tell you, go away, get off this platform. Don't talk here. Your voice isn't, isn't relevant here. Like Lindy West had to leave Twitter because of the avalanche of hate that she was experiencing and it was costing her and it was really bad for her. Lindy West not being on Twitter is awful. I, I miss her voice. Like I really loved listening to her. I I loved watching her interact with people. It sucks that it's such a toxic platform for an open feminist that she can't even stay there. She can't even be a part of the community. Right. So, you know, I, I don't have, I, I struggle with this because you know, people will tell me, don't invest energy in responding to trolls. Okay, well then, I'm just a sitting duck. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just there to be ridiculed and to be derided. And I have no agency. Well, that's not, that's not how I want to be in public. Like, I do have agency. I, I want to tell people, you know, no, no, you've got it wrong. So I fight with myself a little bit about what, what and where, how to interact and how to say no. Um, in the right time, in the right place. I also wanted to to kind of circle back to something that you were you were talking about in terms of the the keeping your head down and you will be rewarded. Um, mm-hmm. Because one of the ways that I find as a as an early career you know pre tenure faculty is where, where this this level playing field remains unlevel is because I'm someone who cares about diversity and because I'm someone who has a reputation for caring about diversity people come to me to be on committees and to do this work and to give talks about diversity in science. And I'm 
almost at the point now where I'm starting to be more concerned that I am known more as an advocate for science and for women scientists than I am for my research. And mm-hmm. I have to decide whether I'm okay with that or not. I don't know really how to fix that, but I, I do feel often that there's this expectation that if you are a woman in science and you do care about diversity, that you will be an advocate. And I'm not saying that I shouldn't be or that you shouldn't be. I'm glad that, I, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had. I'm glad for the work that I do. But at the same time, there are, there are definitely times where maybe my approach to being a, a badass woman in science is just to do some science for a while. And I don't feel like that happens enough for me. I totally get that. And I kind of feel the same way that I am getting, um, partitioned into, you know, the, the relegated into, you can talk about diversity and you can talk about women's issues, but your science is not as important. And yet my, you know, my, I'm here because of my science. I I have this platform because I have published really well-received papers that have gotten press my name has been in National Geographic. My name has been in National, um, the Rolling Stone. I'm I'm here because of the intellectual contributions that I have made, and and, and so are you, right? I and it, it's kind of cool. Like we're we're we're, break, we're breaking the Bechdel test right here with uh, for paleoecologists because we have right? two female paleoecologists. You know, you you're terrestrial. I'm marine, um, but it's you know, our work is central to all of this. And we, we earn legitimacy by continuing to produce excellent science. And I don't ever want that to fall away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think in this time of deep cultural change, in this time of existential crisis for women, like you and I are sacrificing for the greater good by participating in these conversations. Yeah. And it is, it's going to help change the world. You know, we're going to help build a world that is safer and saner for our sons and our daughters down the line. And I think, I think remembering that there is sacrifice involved right now and that this is a very deeply difficult time um, is, is one of the ways that I, I help to sustain my own efforts in these, in these spaces. Um, it's a gift to be able to do meaningful work as a professional. And for me, if this is what it looks like right now, so be it. Yeah, that's really, that's really powerful. I mean, it's just remembering too, that we've all got to do our bit, right? Especially we all, we care. Yeah. Yeah. We all have to serve somebody, right? I mean, our, our science and our voices in the world are in service to the lives and the environments and the places that we love and are connected to. And I think this is the real gift that frankly women in leadership bring is that we are wholehearted. We are full people um, coming to the table to make decisions, to benefit ourselves and our communities and people living now and people living in the future. You know, anytime women are at the table leading a business or um, uh, in, in elected office or an institution, those entities immediately become healthier. They become more functional. And that is why diversity is so key. It increases our ability to solve our own problems and to do better work for the public. Um, so I, you know, I want to thank you honestly for like your strident and 
courageous voice in the public because I feel like I'm following in a path that you are already walking. And like the more that we do this, the more space opens up for other women around us. And frankly, for women of color and for people of color, people that are LGBTQ, um, people that are refugees, people that are immigrants, people that are disabled, like all of those people matter inside of the scientific community. Um, and so finding a way to, to, to broaden that and to support those people is, I think it's really important, um, and impactful work. Well, I, um, thank you. I, I don't know. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour, but, um, this is, this has just been really great. You've given me so much to think about and just thank you for being such a great model of, of, of a citizen scientist, right? Someone who brings their whole self to, to their work, um, and their advocacy and who is not afraid to, to stand up and, and speak out all, in all of the different places that it's, that that voice is needed. So it's been so good to talk to you. It's been so good to talk to you too. Thanks for inviting me on and I'll see you on Twitter. Oh, for sure. Um, <laughs> it definitely will be <laughs> with the power of our blocked togethers combined. <laughs> <laughs> we can only listen to our little bubble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Kara, if it's bubble with you and me, I'll be all right. It'll be nice. To that for you. Well, thank you all so much. Um, I hope all of our listeners enjoyed being a part of our little bubble for a little bit. Um, we really value hearing from you. So if there's something that you would like us to talk about or a suggestion for a guest, uh, or you just have some feedback about how we're doing, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet us at Our Warm Regards, and you can also email us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. For my guests today, Sarah, and our, my co-hosts, uh, who couldn't join us today, Andy Revkin and Eric Holthouse, and our wonderful producers, Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines. I'm Jacqueline. This is Warm Regards. Be well. Be well.